Hi, this is Anthony Rapp, also known as Lieutenant Commander Stamets on Star Trek Discovery, and the only people who annoy me as much as Commander Jet Reno are Adam and Ben from The Greatest Discovery. Captain! Not here. Captain! We have engaged the Klingons. 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 Welcome to The Greatest Discovery. It's a Star Trek Discovery podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. We watched the entire second season of Star Trek Discovery the way it was intended to, Ben, which yeah. is basically in 16 folding, hours. Folding laundry while doing? <laughs> <laughs> this is great. I love the rewatch. I think you're right. I think it is intended to be watched in a binge fashion. Yeah. I don't... I mean, this is the episode to say why you think that is. Maybe by the end, I'll be able to articulate why. But it does satisfy, like, when you can just go to the next episode. Like, just bang, bang them out. Yeah, I think that some of the things that bugged me in our first watch through bugged me a lot less because I was able to just go to the next episode. I think most right. notably, like when they're supposed to be going on the run, and then the next episode they're just taking the fight directly to the heart of Section Thirty-One. Yeah, like waiting a week, and then that being what they did seemed insane to me. Yeah, but it it makes sense if you're if you just watch those episodes back to back. It's interesting how like a a season that's so much about time can be affected by the passage of time taken when consuming it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Time is is really a character in this season of Disco. Yeah. It's characterized, you know? They talk about time time being alive, time being something that that we're fighting for, we're always fighting for the future. That language is all through the the season. Yeah, and if we're talking about uh Dr. Burnham, uh Time is a hateable thing and a yeah. thing that hates you. She fucking hates flat circles. Maybe more than anything. <laughs> she checks into a, ho- a hotel room and like takes the clock radio off the nightstand and just like throws it in the toilet. That's what That's I it. do. Yeah. In that way she's a lot like me. <laughs> hey, I noticed something on the watch through with regards to Gabrielle Burnham. Mhm. That I did not I don't believe I noticed the first time. It seemed like a new thought. Is she from the Mirror Universe? What? Okay, this might th- this might seem totally insane. I'll I'll roll out where this thought came from, and I don't know that I believe it, but I would subscribe to this newsletter, please. <laughs> Lay that on me. My my conspiracy newsletter about y- Gabrielle Burnham being a Terran. <laughs> uh. What's Loose Issex is is the name of your weird documentary? Yeah, yeah. Google Gabrielle Burnham Truth. <laughs> All right, what do you got? The two main points of data in my theory are one thing that Contreland says, and it's before anybody knows he's Contreland. Mm-hmm. So he's mimicking Leland, but also. Maybe saying something that Leland actually experienced, which is when it's discovered that it's 
Gabrielle Burnham and not Michael Burnham in the suit when they when they spring the mouse trap. He says something about I saw her dead body. So Oh. Probably lying. But there is a there is a a chance that Prime Universe Gabrielle actually died and this is near universe Gabrielle just based on that. But then when Giorgio beams down and has that conversation with her where she's mm-hmm. like secretly putting the bug on the on the piece of equipment, uh, there's a, mo- a moment when she reaches out and touches the the stasis field that's keeping Dr. Burnham in this timeline. And she says, like, Gabrielle says, like, didn't your mom teach you to look but not touch? And Giorgio says something about, like, she taught me a lot of things about our universe, but that wasn't one of them, or something like that. Like, she, she says our universe, and it could mean our my mom and my universe, mm-hmm, but it mm-hmm. kind of felt like she was talking, the, it kind of seemed like there was some winking going on there. Wow. So... Except that this theory is cockamamie, <laughs> but I mean, there's a there's definitely a coldness with which Ma Burnham treats her daughter that would be consistent with mirror universe values. Yeah, and th- and when they talk about Michael, they're talking about like doing anything to protect somebody you love, and that being a complicated idea in the context of. Giorgio, you know, this not being Giorgio's Burnham. Yeah. Per se. But maybe it's also not Gabrielle's Michael Burnham. You know, if Prime Universe Gabrielle Burnham were killed and Section 31 has tech the limits of which we can't possibly know, like Section 31's mission is to capture the suit and always has been because it because they lost it the first time. Yeah. If Dr. Burnham were killed and the suit disappeared, it would seem probable that recruiting Mirror Universe Gabrielle Burnham would be an instrument to do that. I don't know, because the other thing that I thought a lot about with Giorgio is that Giorgio is definitely like moving pieces around on the board all through mm-hmm. this season. She plays a very critical role in... Uh, kicking Contreland into the spork box at the end of the episode of the of of the season finale, and and then she like goes through the space butthole with them, right? Like she's gonna be in the show. Yeah. Number one, I don't know how that squares with the idea that she's getting a spinoff series, because <laughs> I guess it will also be in the super far distant future. Yeah. Um, but also, uh, <laughs> like. I don't know that I don't know that any of this is what she was angling for when she started moving pieces around the board. You know, like she she definitely was anti Leland from the beginning, put a lot of effort into undermining what Leland was up to even before he was Contreland. Yeah, it's interesting to consider all of the people and things that went to the other side when yeah. you consider that Emperor Giorgio is there. What's left of, of Contreland is there. Uh, the sphere information went with them. It's a good thing that there's almost no chance that in the future there will be really advanced computers that want sphere archive information to make themselves sentient. The Zahayan power box went with them. Oh. I feel like that could be crucial to their return should they attempt such a return. Yeah. 
I've seen a few people on various social medias compare this season of Discovery to Deep Space Nine and maybe Discovery on the whole to Deep Space Nine. It makes me wonder if next season it will start to feel more like Voyager, like we're trapped Mm. really far from home and want to get back. That's an interesting compression, you know, to to compress the feelings evoked from entire series into a season. (laughs) I mean... That's pretty efficient. I didn't... um, I don't think it really hit me how much the show was telling us that after this season, nothing is going to be the same. Yeah. Until the rewatch. Like, basically all of episode 13 is about writing goodbye letters to people. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's cute. Like, they'll write these, but they won't need to send them. I think they send them. Yeah, I think they get sent. I don't even know what I'm doing. The show tells you fairly plainly what it's trying to do also. Like, we like we see goodbyes being said, but we also see, like, that sequence where we see the suit and Spock's interaction with it and the edit that superimposes Michael's face onto the suit. Right. Like, that's early in season two. Yeah, but that's also Gabrielle that he's mind-melding with. And there's, like, so much dialogue that is hiding in plain sight that right. is of the same kind. Like, Spock telling Michael that she's responsible for his problems well before Spock knows how true that statement is. Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a fun kind of, like, I I have to believe that they're, they really enjoyed the amount of Easter egging they did throughout the season, like, basically telling us plainly what the what the twist is before finally revealing it. The music is also really key in that the late motif of the angel music. You hear that little that little riff come up a bunch of times, especially when the idea of of, of Michael Burnham having a lot to do with what's going on or her, or, this, or this being part of her destiny. Mm-hmm. Or also, like, when the idea of the things that they're going through will have meaning, ultimately. Yeah. Uh, like, any time, like, Michael Burnham is in the room and that idea comes up, the, the score will pepper that in and, in a cool way. Wow, yeah. I I found a rewatch was crucial in enjoying what the music does for this show. Yeah. And I just feel like I have a whole new relationship with the music for this show. Yeah. So there's a sting in that Through the Valley episode, the one where uh, Pike goes to Boreth. Mm-hmm. In that post-mission briefing with Lorel and Ash, I feel like they bring back the music from the end of Wrath of Khan a little bit. When we talk about things we can't explain, or the feeling of hope beyond reason, or hope past death, the music from that moment at the end of that movie is implied here in a fun way and i don't think that that's the only time that they reference other star trek music right in the music of this season it's really well done yeah the music is great and it's clear that they broke the story at some point and then let a few key people in on <laughs> yeah what that was gonna be because the score has a lot to do with with telling the story and and like giving a bunch of dimensionality to it. 
we didn't talk about this at the end of the finale episode, but the credits music where they blend the end credits music from Discovery and a variation of the original series Star Trek theme, you didn't know until they were played together that the Discovery theme is compatible with it. Yeah, it's like the uh, the evacuation bridges. They interlock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it it they play together like uh like two guitar players it it's i thought that was really well done it's the dueling piano of star trek shows <laughs> and they were and that was there the entire time too i wonder if anyone had attempted to play them or blend them in in such a way that would have revealed that i don't know um it's also interesting to think about everything that's left behind in yeah. the in the timeline like it's. It feels like Ash Tyler. I don't see how he could be a part of the show anymore. Mm-hmm. Laurel is not. Uh, you know, for the same reason, probably not going to be a part of the show. I wonder to what degree we can trust a Alex Kurtzman interview for this <laughs> stuff because he said specifically that Spock wasn't going to be in season two. At one point, like back when they, he was doing interviews ahead of season two, oh wow, when season two was in production, like he straight up said that. Yeah. So I don't know that we can trust a lot of the official news that we get about season three. What is Alex Kurtman's the William Barr of Star <laughs> Trek? I mean, you remember when there started to be some heat about the Voke Ash Tyler actor theories? Yeah, like Star Trek came out and said that it wasn't true. <laughs> so, like, this is a team of creators that seems fine with uh, with being dishonest about it, but I think it's to the benefit of all that they that this is covered up. They're not under oath during an interview, you know. Right. Yeah, and I think it makes it more fun for everyone if it's a surprise. So I'm with it, and I'm for it. Yeah, it's weird how like they need the surprises to have currency. Do you think that's the currency of modern media, though? Like, isn't that a big, big part of of any movie or TV show? It is, and it's so weird how averse so much of fan culture is to spoilers. Yeah. But also, it seems like people are constantly trying to get spoilers. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? How do you feel about that personally? I don't know. I mean, like, I can kind of relate to it. Like... There are times when we have a plan for something to do with the show that is known to us, but I don't I don't want to say it to everyone and mm-hmm. somebody will like tweet at me and ask specifically about something and like I know the answer, but I, I will choose not to reply to the tweet just because I don't Right. Uh you know, like it's usually dumb dumb bullshit or whatever. Like will greatest Gen Con be in the donor feed eventually? Uh uh-huh. <laughs> like I don't want to say yes and then you not buy a ticket to the show because you'll get it in a different context. There are like business reasons for it. As as like craven as that sounds, like I kind of think like the best way to experience Greatest Gen Con is live in the in the in the room. I think there's room for every type of fan. There's a certain amount of enjoyment that some people get in the chase. Yeah. Uh tell me a thing that you like about season 2 of Star Trek Discovery. What are what are some of the, some of the highlights for you? Boy, um I really liked how many adventures there were and how many like it it felt 
like they figured out a way to have a lot of episodes that both move the the myth arc but also feel fairly self-contained as in, as adventures. Yeah, you know? I think I remember one of the things you mentioned about season 1 lacking was a thing that you liked about Star Trek a lot, which was like the away mission as a as a concept, like going and exploring new worlds seemed like less of an emphasis in season yeah. one. And it feels like they went a lot of places this season. They went a lot of places. They met a lot of interesting aliens and it always felt consequential. I liked that even when you weren't sure why we were going somewhere, like why the fuck are we back at Kaminar? I can't think of a more boring planet. <laughs> <laughs> it ties in and it's interesting. And they and they found interesting stories to tell in, about each place that they visited. And I think that, like, I was on edge a lot of the time. I was worried that they were going to have to do a bad time travel thing to get back to one by the end mm-hmm. of this season because I thought that they were going to get back to one. And, and they don't. Like, to me, this season is about, like, having things about your past that you wish you could change and feeling like there's an opportunity to change them. And then finding out that that's not how the universe works. And like Mm. what you need to do instead is like understand where people were coming from when they wronged you and like try and empathize with people that made mistakes without forget, you know, without uh, erasing the fact that a mistake was made or, or something bad was done and, and then move forward, you know? And, and that's like, it's, that is so exciting that the end of this, season is about just moving forward and moving past all of this stuff and his current disaffected state suggests extreme empathy deficits you know as you were talking i was thinking a lot about like the big set piece stuff as a supporting argument for that but i think maybe the storyline that's most emblematic of that is the culber stamets thing yeah like they they throw emotional haymakers at each other the entire season and by the end there's a there's a moment of forgiveness there yeah. In the rewatch, I was like, oh, did, did Stamets like imagine Culber coming back and like saying this stuff? It, like, cause, cause he's really like fucked up on his bio bed. And yeah. they do a lot of like blurry camera stuff and Culber kind of like fading into existence and out in that, in that sequence. But then he's like there while Stamets is unconscious later. So I don't think it's that. One thing that I really appreciated about. Uh, Anthony Rapp's performance this season was something that that carries over to the first season and that like how much like Adam Savage he sounds in his like quippy (laughs) confidence like if you listen to him speak engineering uh, he really reminded me of Alton Brown from from Good Eats let's make that French toast step one pour yourself a cup of joe I love Good Eats and you saying that like totally clicks that Lego into place in my brain. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not an impression. It's no, it's, that, it's the, it's the vibe. It's like the energy of it. I don't know why my mind was working in the background, just trying to figure out what he was doing Yeah, because everyone is doing something on this show with their performance. But there was something that like was just out of reach in terms of its familiarity. Yeah. The amount of range that character has is really cool too. Like, because that is his vibe when he's doing a science thing. Yeah. And occasionally he'll have to like stop doing a science thing and do a 
personal relationship thing with Tilly mm-hmm. or with Spock or with Hugh. And I mean, neither of us have forgotten the episode of Good Eats where Alton Brown gets his heart destroyed. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why they put that one out in syndication, but yeah, yeah, it's it's weird that like if you go on Amazon Prime and watch the show, <laughs> it's on there, and it's like, yee, like season four took a weird turn. <laughs> Like the the last episode, he was telling you how to roast cauliflower, and now this? You want to bring your shattered remains of a relationship up to room temperature. (laughs) (laughs) This is the Anton Mount season. However, it felt like watching it in such a compressed way made me... Never forget what Sonequa Martin-Green is doing here. And this is not to diminish the many great things that Anson Mount did on this show. Sonequa Martin-Green just keeps getting better and better and better. And she started out great. And this show is so different if they don't cast her in this part. I I think they they got so lucky. She's, well, they're lucky. And also she has just fucking sunk her teeth so deep into it. Yeah. It feels like her performance belongs in the conversation when we talk about prestige television performances. Yeah. And maybe it's Star Trek and maybe it's CBS All Access, but I wonder if she will be rightfully recognized for her work here in in an Emmy kind of way. I hope that uh, that where this show lives isn't a handicap to that. Yeah, I, and she feels to me like... A, a superstar who should go on to have the career of a superstar, you know, like in the way that Patrick Stewart transcended the confines of Star Trek, I think, yeah. deservedly. And I think there are a few other people on that show that deserved to transcend it also. But yeah, uh, people that take roles in genre television often find there are... Uh, limitations on their careers after that and like famously Leonard Nimoy wrote an entire book about the (laughs) fact that he didn't want to be you know stuck in the Spock box for the rest of his career yeah she's great no doubt about it I you know I think back on season one and how much time was spent with Sonequa Martin-Green as like more Vulcan and unemotional yeah, And just seeing how well she's able to play in the emotional margins in season two and the emotional extremes in season two, I almost miss that we were deprived of half a dozen episodes of emotional acting from her. She's so good at it, you know, like that they ever considered vulcanizing her more than she was. I'm, I'm very glad and grateful that they, they pulled back on that a little bit with her. To me, this season felt, from a story standpoint, like a shit, like this doesn't actually make that much sense in the universe, the way we set this series up, mm-hmm. and and there are a lot of problems with the timeline if we want it to be consistent, if we want, like, if we still want Voyager to make sense, <laughs> you know, yeah. if, if we still want TNG to make sense, like, we have to, we have to solve for a lot of problems we set up for themselves. And I think that the the thing that excites me most about season three is that they basically, with very little exception, did solve for those. They made a huge challenge for themselves in 
trying to get the discovery out of the timeline in in a way where people aren't walking around talking about Spock's sister and the ship that can travel to the other side of the galaxy in the blink of an eye mm-hmm. in all subsequent Trek. Like they, they did such a great job with that, but I feel like the challenge of going as far into the future as they're going is something that they can do. Yeah, it's true. Burn to discovery. Let's go. One thing I wanted to talk about was the was the time travel problems. Like right. I still have the problem of like what is stopping control from sending itself back whenever what is stopping control from copying itself a lot more times than it does? I don't feel like that stuff really is internally consistent in this in this season. In the 11th episode, when the whole Contrelin concept begins, that's the same episode that Dr. Burnham is imprisoned. Yeah. And when Dr. Burnham sees Contreland and says it's too late, that indicates to me that... If Contrelin was always part of the AI plan, and Dr. Burnham knows that due to her time travel, why wasn't that the first thing that Dr. Burnham disclosed once she arrived in this in this moment? Like yeah. the like how in how much danger they were specifically then. Shoot Contrelin's ship now. <laughs> yeah. There's no time to waste. And there are a lot of places in season two where you can really like twist yourself in knots over one character's inability to tell another person and in a piece of information like that that would change the entire rest of the season. Yeah. That's what makes writing time travel so hard. It, it makes me wonder why a group of creatives would would try. Like, it's, <laughs> it's so hard. I feel like, like they just, had to, though. They had to get yeah. Discovery out of the timeline. Like, there has to yeah. be a really strong justification for... Yeah. All of these characters to disappear and go into the future. You don't want living in a fucking dream, Because I know it happens. I'm glad they did. Like I want to say that. Like I, I don't. I'm not knocking the attempt, and I'm not knocking the outcome. Yeah, it's creatively incredibly brave, and I think the season is done so well that that that's what you have to do, right? You have to jingle the keys to get the viewer's attention <laughs> placed exactly where you want it. And so because if a viewer is not held to attention over here, they're going to start noticing the things that make less sense over there. It is impossible to talk about this season without talking about how uneven it felt, especially at the beginning. Yeah, they really spent a lot of time with mycelial network stuff and May. And then I want to say four or five episodes from the end, like the destruction of the network is not resolved at the end of that episode where they rescue Tilly. Yeah, and they jump a bunch more times after that. It's not like they can't jump anymore. I wonder, like, it makes me wonder if uh, in the 900 years into the future... Uh, version of this show is the mycelial network dead from what had begun this season like all of that all of that spore rot that we saw (laughs) you would think would have killed everything by the time discovery uh enters enters the future tense you know yeah i wonder if that's a way to take that technology off the board right i know that they had like a you know the 
showrunner changed mid season mm-hmm. on this on this season. I think it's a a super good season of television, especially given how chaotic it must have felt to make it. Yeah. Um, and I think that like, you know, like we, we talked a bunch at the time about that. There was kind of a weird order of operations with rescuing Culber and Saru's Vaharai stuff. And like the episodes felt a little out of order in terms of like what seemed important for the next episode. It seemed less problematic, like timeline wise on a binge watch. Yeah. But it still seemed out of order to me. And I guess there were, there were like a couple of moments where like Saru, like having gone through something major can like offer some actually salient advice to Culber or whatever, but like maybe it, it was the product of some of that uh, chaos at the, at the top of the show. And yeah, and I, I'm hoping that they've kind of worked all that stuff out and have, uh, have people running the show now that, they, you know, can trust to like have it be a cool work environment and also can like be that steady hand on the on the tiller. Yeah, consistency cuts both ways, doesn't it? Yeah. Like <laughs> consistency of vision is good, but like you want a variety of creators involved to to keep things interesting. I think one of the things we did not like about this season occasionally were uh the establishing shots, like the flippy establishing shots. Yeah. And the Grey's Anatomyification of the beginnings of episodes. But on the rewatch, <laughs> I recognized how little of a concern that was over the entire season. Yeah. I feel like there were only a couple of episodes subject to that. Right. And uh, for the most part, season two was really consistent with its visual and audio style. They tried a few things, and when... They worked, they kept doing them, and when they didn't, they didn't keep indulging in them. That's great. Like, that's what a show should do. Yeah. Like, that's that's how you get a great television show that has a bunch of really interesting seasons, you know? Yeah. <laughs> is, is like, uh, you swing for the fences and try a bunch of stuff, and it doesn't always work, you know? Do you think this is a great television show? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I do, too. It would be a tough pitch because it's just not her bag, but I, I kind of want to see if I can get my wife into it <laughs> so she'll watch it with me. Uh, my wife watched the season two binge with me. Oh, yeah? And uh, and she's enjoyed it quite a bit. Wow. Well, next time they see each other, tomorrow. <laughs> I think the way you can tell if your wife is enjoying a show is if she's looking at her phone or not. <laughs> uh that would not be a strong indicator either way in my wife's case. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think you might be right. I think you you talk about consistency. I think that's Yeah. Yeah, strong, steady hand at the yeah. at the cell phone. <laughs> One of the things that also struck me on the rewatch was how different Gabrielle's experience was of what the fight was like they don't even really agree on what the terms of the problem are for a lot of it yeah and she does a ton of shit to make things more complicated right like the like she shifts the the sphere archive out of its gravitational orbit or whatever to put it in discovery's path she's kind of a chaos agent you know 
you could say she's the architect of the problem, too. Because if what the AI needs is the Sphere Archive, and she's the one that put the Sphere Archive in the path of discovery, is that not the inciting incident? Yeah. Like, what would AI do without that Sphere Archive? It would, uh, it would evolve organically right. and slowly in a way that might be controllable or killable. But I guess, yeah. I guess, like, the Contreeland evolved into what he is without having the Sphere Archive information more than in between 20 and 50% of it. So it's unclear whether or not any of that was able to be used in order to advance his evolution. So maybe I got to walk that back. Like, like the threat that Contreeland and, and Control pose is totally separate from the Sphere Archive. Did you feel like you could tell the difference between Red Angels on the on the rewatch like were you like conscientious of like this time when a time travel thing is happening it's Burnham and this this time it's Dr. Burnham? I mean, I think the the one moment that explains that and it goes by pretty fast is the thing that I believe is that any Red Angel appearance that coincides with a signal yeah. Is Burnham, is Michael Burnham, and any Red Angel appearance that doesn't is Gabrielle Burnham. Yeah. You'd be surprised what you do for the people you love. The seven signals that they like couldn't get a strong fix on didn't bother me as much in the watch through. Like they they registered that there were seven signals, but they tried to like point their their scopes at them and they were like either gone before they could scramble yeah. and get a get a, a strong read or had some obscurity but then like at the end i was like so why did they know there were going to be seven all at once is that something that she like has to travel back in time and and do that part is unclear it seems like there was a moment where all of the signals appeared at once and then disappeared and their inability to lock on to any one of them like that was one of the things that that uh, damaged the Enterprise in the first episode was like they tried to scan it. It blew up their their screens and their ship, their hollow emitters in their ship, and and damaged it in such a way that it needed to be repaired. And maybe that was something that happened fleet wide that made it more storied than practical. Yeah, kind of feels to me like the I don't understand what happened to Ash Tyler slash Folk thing last season. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Where like I feel like this season they just had somebody say yeah he's a human with a Klingon grafted to his bones and it's like oh thank you <laughs> that's one sentence that like yeah. nobody said last season and I wish they had yeah I'm sure that somebody has one sentence about what the deal is with the seven signals that could have been put in a character's mouth and it would have squared all this away I don't have a body I don't have a face uh do you want to play a little game with me Ben. Let's play a game. It's an interview game, and I think I think it's just going to go like this. <laughs> favorite episode, favorite character, favorite moment of season two. I think my favorite episode, I'm going to go with Project Daedalus as my favorite episode. Yeah. Fun Star Trek science, like the, you know, Saru going like, oh, like they, like when she lied to us, she should have, she should have flushed, you know, her, uh, her UV index should have changed, mm-hmm. like all of that stuff. 
plus like just great action set pieces and like a really like a lot of fun space stuff uh and a lot of fun space suit stuff yeah and uh yeah i thought that was a great episode that was a good ep that stood up to a rewatch too all that stuff that non does yeah shadowing arium all of the stuff that arium herself does that i didn't necessarily pick up the first time like how often she asks Tilly to stay by her side because yeah, she's so afraid subtly like she knows that she won't do something bad as in front of Tilly. So Tilly is like the watchtower for her. And as soon as Tilly moves away, Arium goes back to work on her nefarious plan. Yeah. And that was like the first episode where non becomes the badass that, that gets fully realized later on. Like she is super badass. Yeah. Totally. And and I'm glad that she's one of the people that we took to season three. Yeah, right? Favorite moment, I think, is that moment when it is revealed that the red angel that they have captured in their mousetrap is Gabrielle Burnham. Yeah. Uh, just a, a master stroke of story and casting and execution when, uh, when, you know, when she looks up and your brain just like scrambles for a second. Like what? What does that? Yeah. This is not what I expected at all. It was fun to watch a second time also, you know, really cool. And then, uh, I think my favorite character this season, I might give to Spock. Hmm. And I think the reason is that Spock goes on such a big journey to understanding and forgiveness that I think is, it, it it is such an admirable character trait, and I think that the writing and performance of Spock really made me believe that journey and make it feel it and made it feel like Spock, like like the Spock we know and love. Yeah, when he and Michael Burnham reconcile, and he kind of expresses his, you know, he has he has spent some time thinking about it off screen. And realized like what a bind she felt like she was in as a child and how imperfect her understanding of the situation was because of the fact that she was a child. And like he he is able to let go all of the anger that he felt for her for the horrible thing she did to him in the process of empathizing with the the tight spot she was in. Yeah. I really liked the rewatch for the compression of his story. Yeah. Because it felt like for a long, like we were Spock teased for a number of episodes. And then when he finally <laughs> did show up, we, it felt like scenes with him were few and far between. And his dialogue was very clipped. And, you know, when, when he wasn't babbling and and mentally compromised, he was short and and clipped with his sister yeah. And you know by the end you get this payoff with him and and Michael that is very satisfying. I I wonder how much less satisfying it would have been if if Spock had arrived fully formed. Yeah. Because it felt earned by the time you got to the end of that story. It really did. Um if I flip the the questions around on you, do you have answers? Yeah, let's do that. I'll play. If it's not the finale, I think the essential episode of the season is that if memory serves episode, that episode on Talos felt 
so unique. It felt like the Harry Mudd episode from season one in terms of its, like, it casted off the constraints of its format a little bit with yeah. that that pre-roll moment was fun and amazing. And the story itself, that was the hint, I think, of what was to come. Like, we were surprised at, at what Anson Mount did with Pike by yeah. the end of the season. But I think this was the episode that, uh, that foreshadowed that. Like, yeah. he's so good in this episode with what, with his scenes with Vina, especially that I think, I think this was his arrival. Pike is a weird character, right? Because, uh, <laughs> I don't remember him being as country as he was in the first couple of episodes, even, <laughs> even with his accent. Yeah. I feel like he arrived with an idea for the character that ended up evolving a little bit as the season went on, and I like where he landed by the end. Yeah. Uh, it was good. I think If Memory Serves might be my favorite episode uh, of the season. Yeah. But God, that finale, the, the two halves of that finale made me think, like, if they, were, if they were to squish them together and add some new footage to it, like, could that be released as a movie? Feels like it, it could have been a movie. And Seems it Seems good enough. I might think of it as better than many Star Trek films that already exist. <laughs> if it were to be if it were to be formatted in that way. It was it was great. Yeah. Um one thing that I wanted to talk about uh that I don't know if I'll get a chance might be a way to do favorite character. So maybe I'll do that. I think I spent a lot of our episodes in season two talking about how little I wanted Culber to get back together with Stamets. And I had a realization about Culber's character in the rewatch that went like this. Like, to make Culber a gay character in Star Trek was big for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Uh, because the representation of that is important. But there was something else that they did with Culber this season that I didn't recognize until the rewatch, which was... You're giving a gay viewer the ability to see themselves in a television character, which is amazing. But by making Culber's re-entry into the world after death, by turning that Culber into a person who is completely unique and isolated and like a guy who says he's totally alone, like there's no one else like him in the universe, yeah. is another point of representation that, sure. that that character is able to do. Like... So many people watch Star Trek for the escapism aspect of it. So many people watch Star Trek because they feel alone and they watch Star Trek and they and they see it as aspirational and this group of different people who can get together and and solve problems together. And that was like a subtext to the Culber character that I didn't really grasp the first time through. It's not just that he's gay, but it's also that he is one of one. And that speaks to a... a a viewer out there and I think it's crucial. Yeah. So I think maybe that makes Culber my my character. Even though I will reiterate <laughs> don't want him getting back together with Stamets. Man, I came I came out of the rewatch more convicted than ever that they should get back together and that they did get back together. Yeah. I <laughs> we gotta wait. <laughs> gotta wait though. Oh, okay. But maybe it shouldn't be so simple. The moment that sticks out to me, it's going to be the Pike moment of grabbing the crystal and seeing his future and having that blow him away. 
and steady himself and move forward. You mentioned this earlier as we were talking, like how much of this season is about forward momentum. Yeah. And that is a character and a person that embodies that knowing full well that what that momentum does and what that direction does is take him closer to an awful conclusion. It's a wild thing to think about, but it's consistent with the theme of the season. Yeah. And that was a moment for him that, that embodied that. The future can be really scary. You could argue it's scarier when you know the future. Yeah. Like, Setting aside the uncertain future and the fears around that as a concept, but and I think that's very occurrent. Like the the things that we know about the future feel scary, and the things that we don't know are, uh, for some reason, less scary. Yeah, <laughs> and that seems like the reverse. Like the, at least the things we know about in the future that seem scary are things we can like do things about. Yeah. Do you want a lightning round of a bunch of like stray observations that we had during the rewatch? I think I've got a couple of those to throw out that maybe don't fit anywhere else in, in our conversation. Why don't you lightning round them at me and I'll react because I'm, I'm fresh okay. out of observations. <laughs> <laughs> I really grabbed onto the bridge sonar sound effect as a kind of rim shot utility that's used in certain moments. <laughs> Like, I know you know what the sound is, and I know Rob knows what the sound is, so maybe if you dropped it in, like, that sound, they they use intentionally to either emphasize drama or to come after a, a punchline of something quippy or fun on the bridge. And, yeah. like, I, I noticed a ton of that this season, uh, and that really stuck out to me in a fun way. Yeah. You having drawn a bright line around how much Owo and Detmer exchange glances on the bridge made mm-hmm. that like a little distracting to be quite honest on the rewatch but also just this show will blow past some like really important plot beat really quickly yeah and then something will happen and we'll spend 10 minutes getting everybody's expression mm-hmm. like everybody's Keenan react on the bridge yeah <laughs> They're very democratic about Keenan reacts, huh? <laughs> they really are. <laughs> and I, and I've I've always felt that Keenan reacts should be democratized. Too long, the people yeah. at the top have had all the Keenan reacts, <laughs> and and the people down at the bottom, like us, very few Keenan reacts. The people at the bottom are unable to afford <laughs> the Keenan reacts. The 1% own 50% of 100% of all Keenan reacts. I think at the time, I bristled at the at how public the Spock and Michael Burnham jabs were and how much enjoyment everyone got in experiencing them. Yeah, like Spock dunking on Michael Burnham for being a person yeah. that takes all the responsibility to solve every problem. Yeah, and Admiral Bob and Pike kind of keen and reacting that moment too. Like <laughs> at the time, I think I, I don't think I appreciated those moments as being good, as good as they are. Yeah. And I did like those. If in the wider like ecosystem of the react shot, and the react shot is such a thing in this show, I think that is some of the most fun stuff that they do. One concept that stuck out to me during the rewatch also was how Michael is such a selfless person 
and a martyr in some ways, and everyone dumps on her for it, especially Spock. But Pike is just as selfless many times, and he launches headlong into a bunch of situations that are dangerous and bad, and few people ever call him out in the same way as they do Michael. And I wonder if that's just a captain's prerogative thing, or if that's just, you know, only Ash Tyler can talk to Captain Pike and no one else is privy to the conversation. But like when Michael Burnham gets dunked on for that, it's public and everyone sees it. And and when it's Pike, it's private. That might be slightly gendered. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Another thing we talked quite a bit about as we recapped the season episode by episode was was whether or not the emotions were earned that they were going for. And I'm thinking specifically of the funeral for Arium. And to whatever degree you may feel emotion during the finale when the ship finally disappears. And for whatever reason, I feel like uh, I feel less like it was earned in the initial watch and more like it was in the rewatch. Did it yeah. have that effect on you? I did. I definitely felt more connected to Arium as a character and sadder when she went. In this, yeah. in this go through, I don't, and I don't know, know why that is. Yeah, same. I was very taken by the finale and the ship disappearing, and that moment. Like, there's so much tension for so long. It's yeah. it's relentless in those final two episodes, and when the ship finally goes and disappears, and everyone's observing it, there's a catharsis there. And I think it was more pronounced after binging the season because that relentlessness is extrapolated over 14 hours instead of just two. Yeah. Well, and one thing I didn't even really wrap my head around the first time through was they're going through that wormhole for like, like they start on the wormhole course way before Contreland is a solved problem. Right. And like nobody's even really checking in with Giorgio on like, have you kicked Contreland's ass yet? Yeah, yeah. They like they can't stop and wait for anybody. They just have to trust that everybody's going to do the thing that they've been dis- dispatched to do. Yeah, it's a real nail biter and uh, and really well done. The actor who plays Poe played one of the characters responsible for really affecting me in that moment. Her. When she says go, go to Discovery as it's taking off, it made me think of a NASA launch. Yeah. And the words used when a space shuttle takes off. That was super affecting, and I'm glad I got to rewatch it for that. Me too. Did you notice Spock had green blood on his forehead during the hallway explosion? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Fun. I thought that was great. I noticed that um, when... When Jet Reno has her little time crystal experience, one of the images we see is of of Stamets getting hurt in the in the hallway explosion. Oh, and I wonder to what extent her experience, like locked in the room with the time crystal, will play a role in season three. That seems like a setup for something. I thought a lot about that moment, too, because, uh, like, what would have happened if Stamets had remained behind and handled the crystal? Would his vision have been different? Would he have seen his injury take place? The way that Michael saw 
saw herself be killed, for example, you know? And yeah. if that changes the math on what happens after. Yeah, and, and we kind of we kind of made light of Jet Reno staying behind to clean up the hallway mm-hmm. in that in that final episode. But it made me wonder like this like is she staying behind for like a, a more specific reason than she's willing to divulge because of something she saw with the crystal? Wow, yeah. That's interesting. I don't know. Did we do the thing? I think we did it, Ben. A lot to go over. It was a great big season. It was a great big season. I really liked the season. Oh, yeah. I... We should ask that, right? Yeah. Did you like the season? <laughs> How could we not talk about it the way that we have and not? It was, <laughs> uh, I'm happy and grateful that it exists, and I'm looking forward to season three. It's, uh, and I'm looking forward to rewatching parts of season two again. It's really strong, and it feels like it's getting stronger. Yeah, it's cool. So uh, thanks to everyone responsible for its production. Yeah, thanks for making a cool TV show and putting up with some uh, some struggles in the process, too. Yeah. Well, Adam, do you want to see if we have any Priority One messages in our inbox? Yeah, we got to do that. Some season ending, some binge messages, Ben. That's what they <laughs> let's, are. Let's binge them. Let's do like 30 Priority One messages right now. <laughs> Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Ben, our one and only priority one message is of a personal nature. It is from Michael Burnham. Whoa. (laughs) Cool. And the message is for Ben and Adam at Starbase 90210. (laughs) And then in parentheses, it says also 69 words, 350 characters. Boom. (laughs) Message goes like this. I can't tell you why the future is fluid. Time can be rewritten. I need to know. If you were to bang a loafed alien, (laughs) known to you by their Star Trek loaf, what kind of alien would you bang? In parentheses, it says, Adam, it's not Bajoran. We did the science. Close parentheses. (laughs) We go on to say, this is vital to the mission. Things are dire. We need a hint. And we're convinced it's all your fault. I think that, that stands to reason that something would be all our fault. If you were to bang a loafed alien, wow! What kind would you bang? And it can't be Bajoran. Bajoran is off the board. God, it is. I have an answer. Okay. It's Orion, right? It's got to be Orion girl. Like the uh, the uh, green lady that's always banging Kirk and everything. I want to be clear. I do not want to bang an Orion slave girl because consent is a is a big big part of this fantasy. Yeah. So I, I, my choice would be uh, Orion, non-slave girl. And by girl, I mean woman, obviously. Wow. What about you, Ben? I'm going Kelpian, and I want to fuck the ganglia hole. <laughs> Gross. Consent also important. Almost goes without saying, but you never know, Ben. Yeah. Kind of have to say it sometimes. I don't know what Kelpian girls are into. Uh, well, we continue to make this show in the off-season, so if you have a Priority One message you'd like us to read in the form of a, of a trivia question like this one even, you can go to MaximumFun.org slash Jobotron, where personal messages are $100 and commercial messages are $200, and they are a great way to help the ongoing production of this now every other week Star Trek Discovery podcast. They are. What do you think of when you think of 
male grooming. Maybe it's a sharp haircut and a little bit of product. Or a bit of the old beard wax twisted into the ends of a mustache. Maybe it's a shower, a shave, a little spritz of fragrance. Me? I think of shaving my nuts. And not just my nuts, all around those nuts. I'm talking all around those nuts. And this form of male grooming is hard to do when your junk looks like a log of Play-Doh rolled through a dustpan in a barber shop. It's wrinkly, it's wriggly, nothing stays in place, and it's the one area where you don't want to have an accident. That's why I'm glad we're sponsored by the spring cleaning champions at Manscaped. They sent me their brand new Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It's their fifth generation trimmer, featuring two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, a standard one for taking a little bit off the top, and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. They also sent me an extra-large Manscaped t-shirt, which I will never wear, but it was nice of them to do. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code TREK at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. I have tried so many meal services over the years. After all, I am a podcast host. And I gotta tell you, Factor Meals is my favorite. Why? Because I can go from... What am I going to have for dinner to eating a great dinner in exactly two minutes with Factor Meals? And don't sleep on their smoothies either. I got six of these in the box this week. Mango, tropical fruit, strawberry or banana. They're all amazing. They're like meal supplements I can enjoy while I'm on the go. Head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use the code trek50 to get 50% off. Again, that's the code TREK50 at factormeals.com slash TREK50 to get 50% off. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up, the episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Well, Adam, uh, in a couple of weeks, we are going to have another episode. And I wanted to see if you were into the idea of reading the... Uh, Star Trek Discovery Annual that is out, or at least the first half of it. I'm into that. Yeah. 
Um, I think uh, I have a lot of ideas for things we can do in the off season. Of course, there's some there's some TOS referenced in this season that I think we should probably take a look at. Yeah, we uh, got to watch the cage at some point, right? Yeah, and there's going to be some. Uh, I think there's some more comics announced. And, yep, that's uh, true. We'll be going to Star Trek Las Vegas, so I'm sure there will be a lot of news for us to talk about after that. Yeah. So, uh, so don't don't worry. This is still going to be a fun show to listen to, is what I'm saying to you, fair listener. Don't unsubscribe. Sub- subscribe twice. Yeah, double subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> subscribe on a friend's phone. Thanks for watching season two with us of Star Trek Discovery. We had a, a blast recapping and making jokes about it with and for you looking yeah. forward to what happens in season three and uh as well as everything we do in the off season it's gonna be fun i think we should leave it with robs from here what do you say buddy leaving it leave it <laughs> leave it good boy the greatest discovery is a maximum fun podcast Hosted by Adam Pranica and Ben Harrison. And it's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is by Adam Ragusia. Head on over to MaximumFun.org slash donate to support the ongoing production of our show. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. All right, thanks. We'll see you next time. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.